0: reading tonight will be Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And it reads, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write him him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated.
1: Well, I'm very happy to be with you this very grateful for your presence tonight for the wonderful singing that we had. And Lynn, thank you for that and leading us in such a wonderful way. These song leaders do an excellent job and we're really blessed in having so many fine song leaders and the prayers. Brother Jones, thank you for that very sincere and very scriptural prayer and and for the scripture reading and your presence tonight. We're very grateful. I want to speak tonight to the church at Philadelphia and uh, there is a handout prepared if you do not have one just raise your hand and one of these deacons will see to it that you're able to have a copy and that way you can have a permanent record of the discussion and the points that we will be made while we're doing that and let me say thank you for your kindness I'm humbled by it and I'm very grateful for the privilege to preach and teach the gospel and for the great privilege of preaching and teaching the gospel here at this place. Thank you for having me. I feel like I'm the lucky one. There is one thing I wish you'd continue to do for me. That is, please continue to pray for me and mine as we remember you in our prayers from time to time. The church at Philadelphia is the sixth of the seven churches that we read of in the seven churches of Asia that are enumerated for us in the first portion of the book of Revelation. It has not been our task to look at the seven churches of Asia Our task in our Sunday night seminars to pick out different congregations of the Lord, different places like Jerusalem and Ephesus and such as that. And now I wanted to include a discussion of the Church of Philadelphia. As I was preparing these particular matters and looking and studying at this once again, as I've done a number of times in the past, just more and more just came out uh, from the page and more... And more material just seemed to roll from the uh, passages. And I kept looking at this, and I kept looking at this, and I kept thinking, I will never be able to say all I want to say about this in just one Sunday night. So I think what we may do is we may talk about part of this this evening, and then, Lord willing, we'll spend uh, another Sunday evening on the latter portion of this uh, congregation in in Philadelphia. Can you imagine, though, stop and think about it for a minute, Uh, The Lord is writing a letter to you. And as the church gathers together at Philadelphia, I imagine they were holding their breath to listen to the letter that the Lord had written. And I have an idea that whatever the time was when the church assembled together to hear that letter, not a member of that congregation was absent. They were there to hear the reading of the letter which Jesus wrote to the church at Philadelphia. I'm sure everybody was there. That should be the case tonight, shouldn't it? Whenever the church comes together, we ought to all be here to read and study and learn what the Lord has said about the church, his church, the different locations in the New Testament, or whatever the subject happens to be. We ought to devote ourselves to the point, I'm going to be there because the Lord is writing. The Lord has communicated well, through inspired apostles and prophets of the New Testament, the revelation of which guaranteed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and that we ought to have that kind of bated breath. What does the Word hold dear for me? And every one of us ought to be there whenever the assembly comes around because the Holy Book is opened up and it is being discussed and it's being explained. I'll say more about that a little later this evening. The church at Philadelphia for a while because the Lord did not have any censor or any condemnation of that congregation. There are only two congregations of which were of that category. Philadelphia is one and Smyrna was another. They escaped any kind of criticism. There's nothing critical or no rebuke is given with regard to the church at Philadelphia. And I'm sure they were very grateful for the communication they received from the Lord. I would like to grow in my appreciation of this congregation and I would like to come to understand the faithfulness of these Christians better. I'd like to know more about them. I'd like to know what makes them tick. I'd like to know what they were and how they were devoted to the Lord so that I can be that way too. And so tonight I invite your attention to a study of the Church of the Lord at Philadelphia a church that was not too far from Sardis. In fact, these congregations are not too far from one another. The city of Philadelphia, some 28 miles from Sardis, second largest city in the region. It was a very important city, strategically located. In fact, it was a very important city for the spread of the Greek culture. And a lot of the Greek mindset, or culture as we may say, was focused there and spread from that area. But the Lord knew that that'd be a good place for the gospel to spread. It'd be strategically located not only for the Greek culture, but for the gospel of Christ. And that a church of the Lord needed to be there at that place, so the gospel could be sent out from that area, and it was. It was an agricultural kind of region. It's had its troubles through the years. Historically speaking, it suffered tremendous damage due to earthquakes. It's sort of on a, one of those earthquake type of faults, It was actually destroyed in A.D. 17 and rebuilt. It seems to always bounce back even though it faces these natural calamities and devastations and did so on into the Byzantine age. The Byzantine Empire, of course, was the continuation. If I may, please grant me a brief indulgence here. But by the time of the 5th century, the Roman Empire is defragmenting in the West. However the eastern portion of the empire continues to thrive and becomes known as the Byzantine Empire and lasted for a thousand years and it is an amazing course of study in history in that particular point in time its central location was Constantinople today known as Istanbul, Turkey and yet it leaves a great legacy behind we don't see or hear much about the Byzantine Empire because we're so enamored with the Roman Empire but the Byzantine Empire really is a continuation of the Roman Empire in the east well you see that this city is an important city in that period of time and of course it becomes Regard to the preaching of the gospel, I like to talk a little more about the background, though I have to be careful here. I don't want to use up all of my time on these matters, but because there are more important matters than this that are uh, ahead for us that we want to focus upon. But it is a very religious town. The city of Philadelphia in ancient times was filled with paganism. In fact, one source that I've read some time ago—I can't remember when—is called the Little Athens because there were so many pagan temples there in that city. And they had paganism uh, that was a great part of uh, the city, and that probably is part of the persecution that the church faced in Philadelphia because of the paganism that was there. But you'll notice in chapter 3, verse 9 of our study tonight, there's a reference to the synagogue of Satan. Evidently, there was a very hard-nosed, stubborn version of Judaism that was there that they in turn, they were from Judea, and in doing so, they caused trouble for the church at Philadelphia, and we'll make mention of that as we come along in our exposition. But not only was there paganism there, and not only was there a stubborn form of Judaism there, but there was New Testament Christianity there, neither by the work of the Apostle Paul or his associates. The gospel of Christ came to the city of Philadelphia, And thus it is for our study tonight, and we find it referenced in the pages of this great book, the book of Revelation. I think, though, the real heart of the matter comes when we begin to look at the assertions that are made concerning Christ. And I really understand better the church at Philadelphia when I understand their understanding of Jesus and how they hold him to be true and what Jesus says about himself and I just call this section assertions concerning Christ because this is what he said about himself this is what the church held about Jesus and I want to know more about that it says unto the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the holy one the one that is true the one that is holy this is the one that is holy and I want to say that there's never been one on earth as holy as Jesus perfect in every way perfect in life He's described here as the Holy One and He was. He lived here on earth and He lived life perfectly. He never thought the wrong thing. He never said the wrong thing. He never did the wrong thing. His life was pure. You know on one occasion in John chapter 8 an interesting chapter from a number of standpoints but um, this woman you know caught in adultery and and the discussion involved in that and they uh, wanted to accuse Christ of wrongdoing and and they actu- he actually asked them this question, which one of you accuse me of sin? Which one of you does it? And not a one of them Jesus of sin. That's John 8 and verse 46. If you'd like to read that in the pages of your Bible. They could not answer him with regard to his purity of life and his moral character. Now if I were to say that, which one of you accused me of sin? A dozen hands would go up tonight. Rightly so. But they couldn't say that about Jesus. You know why? He's the Holy One. And that's the first thing that's to the church at Philadelphia. Now not only did uh, Jesus silence the opposition by appealing to his pure life but even the enemies of Jesus recognized his purity. You know it was Pilate who said twice first in John 18 then again in John 19 I find no fault in this man. The Jews had brought Jesus before Pilate in order to be crucified. They wanted the death sentence uh, administered uh, with regard to Jesus, and they got it. They got it because they put such political pressure upon Pilate that he relented and gave in and turned Jesus over to the, the Jews. We understand in our study that God worked that out for man's benefit and God's glory. But at the same time, Pilate, the enemy of the Lord, would turn around and say, I find no fault in this man. And what did Judas, after betraying Jesus, say of him? I have betrayed innocent blood. He is the Holy One. And Jesus makes this assertion about himself as he writes to the church, which is at Philadelphia. Now, I come to a passage like that, and I think I need to remember that. I need to remember that Jesus is the Holy One. And that all of my actions and all of my behavior and all of my life is going to be judged compared to the Holy One. It's not going to be judged according to you. You're not going to be judged according to me. That kind of test I could pass. That kind of judgment you could pass. But my judgment is going to be up against the perfect standard, which is the Holy One. Jesus the Christ The righteous. In which there was never any sin. Never any wrongdoing. And I just have to tell you all the things that he faced. And all the things that he went through. And all the persecution that he endured. He endured it properly. With love and kindness in his Faithfulness to the word of God and to the will of God. Never saying or doing the wrong thing. But it says not only that he's holy, it says that he's true. He says in verse 7, the words of the Holy One, the true one. And the way this passage is cast, it tells us that this is a different quality of which he's describing Jesus. He's the true one. In what respect would he be the true one? He's the Messiah. He's the true Messiah. There were others who proclaimed themselves to be Messiah, but he's the true one. That's what Peter said in Acts chapter 2 verse 36. You've crucified Je- who's Lord and Christ. He's the true one. There's not going to be any salvation in any other. He is the true light. John chapter 1 verse 9. John talks about the preparatory work of John the Baptist. And he's talking about him bearing witness to the light. But he was not that light. He would bear witness of the true light. The true light would come into the world and dispel the darkness and the ignorance and the error of mankind. And they could look to the true light and come to know what truth really is. John chapter 6, he's the bread of life. He's the true bread. Bread is a basic substance of survival. Bread is something that we think about. John 6 and 32, we think about it as a necessity to survive. Without it, they could. Now, he's the true bread. Not that he was physical bread, of course, or literal bread, but that he was spiritual sustenance, that one could continue to go to Christ and feed on his word, and thus be satisfied. He's the vine, the true vine. John chapter 15 and verse 11, that we thus are part of Christ, our Father, the one because for us now we have hope for obtaining eternal life. He's the only hope that we have. You know, that's what the apostles were preaching in Acts chapter 4 and 12. There's no salvation in any other name under heaven than his name, Jesus Christ. He's the true one. He's not only the holy one, perfect and pure in every respect, he's also the true one. But now here's an interesting assertion made about Jesus He has the keys of David. Did you notice that? The words of the Holy One referencing his purity. The true one. There's none other like him. There's no salvation in any other than Jesus himself who has the key of David. To say that he has the key of David is that he has the authority to open the door that we're going to study about in a moment and to close the door. He has authority. He is the gatekeeper so to speak more modern day type of language. Kingly authority. The king of David. The key of David. You know we studied that. Let me bring that to your remembrance in Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. In our Wednesday night study. Eliakim was the steward of Hezekiah. Who had the key of David. Meaning that he was the gatekeeper to the king's house and the king's palace. And that you couldn't get in. You had no entrance into the house of Hezekiah. Unless you went through the key of David. The one who had the key of David. Which was the king's steward. Eliakim. More probably Eliakim I guess is the way it's supposed to be pronounced. But that's the point of the phrase. Key of David. And Jesus has that key. And he has the key. And the house that he's referring to is the church that belongs to him. He has the key to the church. And if Jesus opens that door to the individual come in. But if Jesus does not open the door to that individual, that individual cannot come in. Notice in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, he says in the passage, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. He's the ruler. He has absolute authority to his house, to his church, which is the church of the living God. While I'm on this point, I'd like to read another verse. It comes to us in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, the latter portion of Ephesians 1, certainly talking about the absolute authority Christ has over his house, the church. He has the keys of David. Notice in verse 20, That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, I'm in Ephesians one, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Each word is a powerful word in this text. But if we look at the summation of it, it is saying he has absolute authority over the church as the head of the church. There's no one, no being, who has authority over the church like Christ. And he is the one who can... to the church. He'll admit you into the church when an individual submits to the terms of entrance which Jesus has given. And before I go any further, let me explain carefully and precisely what the terms of entrance to the kingdom of God are given to us by the one who has the keys of David, Jesus Christ. If a person... Comes gospel of christ faith is produced in his heart how can they hear unless someone tell them romans chapter 10 and verse 14 he believes it for what it is the gospel of jesus christ mark 16 15 and 16 he repents of his sins acts chapter 2 verse 38 to repent means to love and his practice of sin you give it up and you change your mind and you start now living in a different way than what you've lived before. You start living for Christ. And you confess your faith in Christ. And I'm going to use a passage. Sometimes it's not found in the more modern translations because of some textual issues. <coughs> but it is found in a number of manuscripts. Acts chapter 8. 36-37. Whereby the eunuch. You know if you believe with all your heart you may be Baptized then being immersed in water for the remission of sins is one of the terms of entrance into the kingdom of God. And the biblical citation I'd give to that would be Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins calling on the name of the Lord. These are the terms of entrance set by the one who has the keys of David who is the absolute authority over his house. And if he opens that door and you submit and he opens the door, you'll be allowed to come in. If you do not submit to those terms of entrance, you will not be in the house. I don't care if you're as pious as an angel. And I don't care if you're as faultless as a seraphim. If you do not admit to, submit to, the terms of entrance to the kingdom of Jesus Christ, you will be on the outside of Christ. Because Jesus has the keys of David. He's the gatekeeper. And he shuts so that no man opens. And he opens that no man may shut. That's the next great point that he makes for us in this passage of Revelation chapter 3. This wonderful point about the open door. Door is an amazing thing, really. A door can be open or it can be closed. A door can be open where there are all kinds of opportunities, and yet... A door can be closed and you just can't make it happen no matter what you do. And I think I've experienced that in life. I think I have experienced, just from my own experiences, whereby there were doors I tried to go open and I was beating my head to go through that door and it just wouldn't open. And as I look back, on, the Lord had closed the door there. And then there were doors that just automatically seemed to open up. And it just seemed to me personally, from personal experience, I have no objective basis with which to judge, but just from personal experience, it would just seem like the Lord was opening up a door there and I needed to go through it. With regard to... Jesus opens those doors and Jesus closes those doors. And he dispenses and withholds his treasures. And he gives or he denies a talent... Or its blessing as it pleases him. He opens those doors. Shut it. Or he closes those doors. And no man can open it. One thing is for sure. Verse 8. I know your works. Behold I set before you an open door. And so now he begins to tell the church at Philadelphia. here's some things that I'm going to So I call this paragraph, Assurances Christ Gave. I've seen something of who Christ is and and their understanding of Him. How important He is to our spiritual life. But now I see things that He's giving them. He's assuring them of certain things. And one of the first things that He assures them of is an open door. He says, I'm going to open up a door for you. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, he is giving them opportunity. He's giving them opportunity to reach people in their community with the gospel. And he says, I know your works. first promise that he gives the church to Philadelphia. I'm going to open the door for you. Because I know your works. And that would imply that they were a dedicated people. A people who were filled with good works for the Lord. And that they were doing the will of the Lord the goodness of the people, the holy behavior of the people, the great faith of those brethren at Philadelphia. Jesus says, I know those, I know your works. And I rather suspect that not only does Jesus know their works, and I know he does, but that the community in which Philadelphia was located knew their works. They no doubt knew about the good works that this congregation was doing, the kind of life that they were living, the kind of attitude that they had toward another. And so Jesus is saying, I'm going to open up a door for you. I know what kind of congregation you are. I know how faithful you've been. I know how dedicated you've been. How you've been working in the field of the Lord. And I'm going to open up a door for you. Because he's the gatekeeper. And he can open up that door. When he decides to do it, it'll be done. And no one can shut it. Now, don't believe... The open door was limited to preaching only. I think when he says. It certainly included opportunities to preach the gospel. And it would certainly include opportunities to teach others about the gospel of Christ. But I don't believe it was limited to that only. The apostle Paul. Was to an open door. He's in Corinth. And he said Now. This is an open door that's been opened up to me. I want to turn to the passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and the verse verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, and then he goes on and gives instruction with regard to the matter. Jesus opened up that door. When he was in Ephesus, he was talking about the work in Corinth, And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9. I'll start with verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. He's opening up the door for Paul. And Paul recognized. Now I do think in his respect. That it was a door of opportunity to preach the gospel. And to teach others the word of God. But I don't think that the door that he has reference to to the church at Philadelphia is limited to just that. Well, there's more opportunities that can be given with an open door. I believe God has opened up a door for me to come and preach to you. And he's given us that open door together. We walk through it. God will give you some open doors. He'll give you some open doors to serve in your wonderful way. And it is a wonderful way that you can serve. Your opportunity may be different to serve. It may be of a different sort. It may be the kind of service where you cheer someone up. Reference has been made to those who are sick and who are ailing. And it could be that this fine door is open to you and you walk through it to help lighten the load of an individual who's burdened with the problems of life or physical suffering. It could be that a door is open to you to speak a word of love to someone who needs building up To put a pep in their step. To show kindness to another. To give understanding with regard to the scriptures to another. It certainly would see and show the community of the great value of Christ's church. When the community sees the church using and going through the open doors that God has given them. I'm going to give you at Philadelphia an open door. And no doubt I think that would include the matter of preaching and teaching the gospel. But I think it includes a lot more than just that. And as they go about taking advantage of the open doors and the opportunities to spread the gospel and to help the people in the community, the community begins to see the great value of the Lord's church, the body of Christ. Now there's a point here that needs to be... I suppose I ought to jump down to verse 9 talk a little bit about that synagogue of Satan there. That even though... They have an open door. There's going to be opposition to them, and it's just not going to be. They can just walk through the door, and everything's going to fall into place, and everything's going to be the way they want it to be. Far be it from that, because there is a synagogue of Satan there, who's going to persecute the church and try to hinder the progress of the gospel. Even though with that being the case, the door is open, and they should go through it, just as doors are open for us. And may we be spiritually attuned to go through them, so that we can see them. God providentially has opened a door, and let's go through it. Now, I think they have an attitude about themselves that we often share with them. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word. I'm going to give you an open door. Now, you're small, and you're not the large. You're not the most powerful group that is there. But you still have this open door. And sometimes we think that way. We're so small. What can we do? Uh, Even though the door may be open and the Lord opened a door for us, what can we do with regard to this particular matter? But still, if God is on our side, we make a majority. Even though we may be true. That was Paul's point in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I probably should read those verses because they're such powerful verses. And they talk about his weakness, but yet his weakness with God, he's made strong. And that's the point that Paul is making. Second Corinthians chapter 12, let me read verse 19 for you. Have you been thinking all along that we have been defending ourselves to you? It is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your uplifting beloved And he tells us in this particular matter that it was for their benefit. He's made strong during his weakness because of God. Let me read for you verse 9. And I'll read 9 and 10. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast of my weaknesses. You see, I I don't have the ability to do this by myself. I'm telling you, I don't have... The power, the strength, the ability to accomplish all that needs to be done. But with God's help, we can get this job done. So that the power of Christ may rest upon us. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What do you suppose he meant by that? I am weak. But you know that weakness caused me to depend more and more on God. If I were strong and mighty and powerful, I might think that I was responsible for all the success that went on. If I had uh, a great deal of strength and power, I would begin to think, Well, I'm the one that brought all this about, but I'm weak. But even though I'm weak, I still have great strength through Christ who strengthens me. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which is a paraphrase of Philippians chapter 4 whereby Paul is emphasizing to that good church how important it is to work with God. And so I think it's an important point that he's making in our passage tonight of chapter 3. I know that you have little power. You have little strength, your translation may say. And that, of course, I suppose all of us feel that way one time or another. But with God's help, we will be successful. You remember the story of the little boy is out there working in the field with his dad? And they were picking up rocks, and they were loading up rocks. Now, you don't understand all this. I understand being, living in the city like you have all your life. But out in the country, you try to clear the field so that it makes it more, uh, you can cultivate it better. And you're picking up rocks, and you're moving them. And the little boy was moving the rocks and around, and he found a rock that he just couldn't move it. And he worked and he worked at moving the rock and getting it up on the sled so that it could be pulled off, but he just couldn't do it. Finally he went to his dad and he said, Dad, I've done everything I can do, I just can't move that rock. He said, you didn't do everything you could do. He said, well, I tried everything I could did. did you ask me for help? You've never done all you can do until you ask your father for help. Now isn't that the truth? Even though there... Before us and it almost seems impossible for us because we are small because we are weak because we don't have great strength and we're weak in strength but we have never done all that we can do until we ask our heavenly father for help and then there's another point he makes with regard to them and that he says but little power and yet you have kept my word what a fine statement he makes about the church of philadelphia now, not only does he say that once, he says that twice. We'll jump down to verse 10. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance. He told them twice, you've kept my word. One of the great things that they did was to be faithful to the word of God. And the quality that they had is certainly something that we need today. Churches of Christ need to be loyal to the word of God. May we never neglect God's word. May we do our due diligence in reading it, exploring it, studying it, expressing it, and teaching it. So many sermons sometimes simply are sermonettes which never really explore the Word of God and deal with the passages that we need to deal with and apply them properly. Did not Paul tell Timothy, preach the Word? Be instant in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. We have a responsibility to keep God's Word. It's not your Word. It's not my Word. It's God's Word. And I have a responsibility. Part of the great success of the church at Philadelphia was they kept the Word of God. And as I said, he didn't say it to them once. He said it to them twice. They were faithful. And they're keeping of the Word of God. I know your works, verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Amen, amen. They did not deny the name of Christ, even though they'd faced a great suffering. They were loyal to the name of Christ. Do you know how many people, and I have no idea how many people are out there tonight, who go to their religious buildings and go through their religious practices, never naming the name of Christ. They do not worship in the name of Christ. They've never put on the name of Christ. They follow their man-made ordinances and traditions. They use men's names and worship in buildings that are titled after the names of men or ordinances which they have proclaimed. But there is a divine name whereby we follow. And that divine name is the name Christ. Do you know that's what the Christians were called first? The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, Acts chapter 11 and verse 26. It's a divine name. He said, you've been loyal. You've kept the name. You didn't deny the name, even though you faced persecution from a synagogue of Satan, who feel like they're really Jews, but they're not. Yet you face persecution from the pagans that are in the area, but you were loyal to the name. When I was baptized, I was baptized into that name by his authority. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name. In Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, it is the divine name that we live by and that we follow. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, it is a prominent name, the preeminent name. There's not a greater name than that of Christ. It is the name whereby we must be saved. Acts chapter 4 and verse 12. And yet legions. Who worship with their man-made ordinances and precepts. After man-made traditions. The names of mere men on their buildings. And in turn following their man-made ordinances the church at philadelphia wasn't that way the church at philadelphia was a group of people that were loyal to the name of christ and they wore the name i know your works behold i've said before you an open door which no one is able to shut i know that you have but little power And yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. That's a responsibility we've got. To keep the word of God. And never compromise. Now I've got more I need to talk about and it begins in verse 9. I really want to talk about this synagogue of Satan in verse 9 and what it means. And there are another couple of points that need to be made. And this is one of the important points, but I simply don't have time to talk about it tonight. The rewards of faithfulness. And if you read on down through the paragraph, and I hope you will, you see how he t- how he is faithful to and admonishes those who've been faithful to him. And we don't want to miss that point. And I'm sorry that I can't bring it before your attention tonight, but I'll do my best if the Lord allows me to, to come back next Sunday. Evening and talk about the church at Philadelphia once again. I went through for a brief moment the terms of entrance, Jesus as the gatekeeper, I called it. John in writing this great book talked about Jesus having the keys of David. He's the authority over his church. To obey the terms of the gospel by hearing and repenting and confessing and being baptized. If you've never been obedient to the and been added to the church that you read about in the pages of the Bible. Not a man-made organization, but a New Testament church. The New Testament church at this place. I urge you to do it tonight. If you've been unfaithful, repent of that tonight and become a part of the body of Christ once again. Won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?